Well, that's what I call some singing people. This building is really fascinating. So depending on where you are, you can hear things or can't hear things. There's pockets. Um, I don't tell people this, but I like being over here. It helps me to get up here. Don't get me wrong. There's a reason for that. But one of the other things I really like about it is you can hear what's happening in the room. So praise God for that and for those songs that we're singing. God takes pleasure in the praises of his people. Um, And uh, we are not the audience. He is. We're offering our praise to him. And yet we also encourage one another as we sing these truths together. And uh, grateful for that time to sing. So we're continuing today in, uh, in, in the book of Hosea. And you, you might be asking, and a couple have approached me, they're like, why, why are we going through this book? <laughs> you know, why? Because, let's face it, uh, this is not a book that's often preached through in many churches. And it, it's, it's uh, from another culture, another time, even more so than other areas of the New Testament. It can be challenging to understand the pictures that the prophet brings forward and, and, and the way he describes different things. And certainly the Bible would tell us that, that you know, all scripture is inspired by God. It's profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training, uh, that all of us would be equipped. So we know that God has it in here for a reason. And that's one of the, one of the reasons why we're in this book. But, and that's so vital, and it's true. But, but there's something else about this book that I think it's important we understand. This is a powerful love story. I mean, let's face it, you, you turn on Netflix, you go to your, your home screen there. There's a whole section for rom-coms, right? What's that? Romantic comedies. We like to laugh. You know, it's funny. But we also like romance. God's kind of hardwired us to like that, I think. And, uh, you know, so, you, you know, what do you, what do you find? Well, there's tons of lo- movies there. It's about the, there's this lonely, kind of self-confident, arrogant guy. And he finds this girl. And at first they're annoyed with each other. They don't like each other. And then slowly over time, right, they start to become more attracted. Then, of course, a massive crisis has to happen. So now, oh, no, they're not going to be together. Right? And then something happens. Some turn of events comes about. And then the movie ends. They're gazing into each other's eyes. And, you know, the proverbial, they walk off into the sunset together. Credits roll. And you're like, oh, that was so great. You know, and there's just something about that. And by the way, yes, guys, we do the two. You can admit it. It's okay. All right? It's fine. Um, Yes, my page is more action-adventure. I get that. But there's a place for this, right? We, we, are, we are made to, to like this in some ways. Uh, and, and, but here's the thing. As much as we enjoy those things, the fact is there's, there's also real life. And, and real life's different. Hosea is a love story, but it's not smooth. It's not polished. It's not airbrushed. It's gritty. It's agonizing. It's a candid story of love between a faithful husband, Hosea, and an adulterous wife named Gomer. And, and Hosea marries Gomer and, and loves her with his whole heart. They have a baby together. Then she, we find that over time she's dissatisfied with him. She pursues many other lovers. And another baby is born. And another. And it, became, it becomes apparent that these are not his children. And her adultery progresses to the point where she leaves Hosea for yet another lover. And this man's cruel and uses her and then casts Gomer aside into the slave market. And of course, you know, you can imagine being there, right? The gossip in the community spreads and Hosea hears of her humiliation. You can imagine the day where she's standing there to be sold. She's placed on the sale block. She's stripped down. She's dirty. She's humiliated. And Hosea appears in the crowd. And people whisper, oh yeah, Hosea's come to see her get what she deserves. 
And then the auction begins, and you can kind of hear, do I hear, you know, eight shekels of silver? Someone cries out eight, and then someone else cries out ten. Do I hear twelve? Someone else cries out twelve. And then something shocking happens. Someone cries out, 15 shekels of silver and a homer and laketh of barley. And everyone turns to look. And who is it? Hosea. He buys her. And then something even more shocking happens. As the townspeople look on, Hosea buys Gomer not to enslave her, but to free her to take her home again as his wife. And he says, you will not pursue other men. You will be faithful to me. We will be together, husband and wife. And it was as shocking then to witness that day as it is to us today. And it's amazing. We we can go through this section of the Bible and we can be quick to dismiss unfaithful Gomer as sort of beyond help, beyond hope. But then as we see the story unfold, we find out, well, she's not without hope at all. As a matter of fact, there's great hope for her, but it's not because of her faithfulness. No, instead it's because of Hosea's stunningly faithful love. And that's a really good thing. Because Gomer's faithless, adulterous life is shown to us in all of its graphic detail for one clear reason. We're being shown ourselves. That's us. And and, and rather than casting her aside, Hosea loves her unceasingly and rescues her repeatedly. Why? Because that's how God loves his people. God called his people out of Egypt. Remember that? He rescued them from slavery, he brought them to Mount Sinai, he gave them the covenant. They were married. He brings them into the land. He provides them every good thing. And after their marriage, they become unfaithful and start chasing after other gods. And we find that God does not love his people because of their virtue or purity. God does not love us, brothers and sisters, because of our virtue or our purity. We all struggle greatly with our impurity. No, God loves us in spite of ourselves. God loves us because he is the God of faithful, covenant-keeping love. So the book of Hosea is a love story. It's an ugly, real, deep, full, shocking, and true love story. It's the story of God's faithful love for us. And that's what makes the book of Hosea important. And that's why we're spending so much time here. So let's continue our journey through this amazing book. The first three chapters, as you'll recall, if you've been with us, set up that story between Hosea and Gomer. Chapters four and following have described now the people of Israel, God's people, in light of that story. And we're in the middle of a section where God, in his love, is confronting his people for their repeated, ongoing faithlessness. And God in his love is calling them to repentance. And God in his love is going to bring discipline to them as he calls them to turn. And so this is an ongoing courtroom scene, and and we pick it up again in chapter 7, 
beginning with verse 3. He's describing the leaders. You recall from last week, he began in, in chapter 5 talking to the priests and, and addressing their corruption. And then he cries out to come and, and, and return to the Lord. There's a, a call for repentance. And there's a declaration in the beginning of verse 7 saying, I would heal Israel. I'm ready to do that. I want to restore you. But they continue to deal falsely. And so now, in, in verses 3 through 7, we find there's an allusion made to Israel being like an oven. Um, that phrase occurs three times. Go ahead and take note of that as we, as we read this. In, in light of God's word, and because we want to honor it and receive it as God's word, would you please stand and follow along? Describing the people of Israel, the prophet goes on to say in verse 3, With their wickedness they make the king glad, and the princes with their lies. They're all adulterers, like an oven heated by the baker, who ceases to stir the fire. From the kneading of the dough until its leaven, on the day of our king, the princes became sick with the heat of wine. He stretched out his hand with scoffers, for in their hearts they're like an oven. They approach their plotting, and their anger smolders all night. In the morning it burns like a flaming fire. All of them are hot like an oven. They consume their rulers. All their kings have fallen. None of them calls on me. Lord, we ask that you would open our hearts to grasp what this section of your word says, that you would apply it to our lives, that this love story between you and your people that describes your unfailing covenant-keeping love for us, those who have been brought into a relationship with you through Jesus in the new covenant, we pray that we would see clearly and that we would live differently in light of your work amongst us now. May your spirit teach us. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Go ahead and take your seats. So today we're going to be looking at this section in light of a question. What do we learn about God as he responds to his people, his people's spiritual adultery? What does this show us about him? Last week we really focused in on, on idolatry and what that means for us and how to turn from that. This week we're kind of turning the lens somewhat to see what, how does, what do we find about God? Find out about God in this section. And, and the first thing we would see is that God requires exclusive trust. This section on the oven, you wonder, well, what on earth is he talking about? Well, certainly there's heat, there's passion, there's lust, there's desire. That picture would be very much in line with the adultery of Gomer. She's lusting after her other lovers. Her heart's set aflame for them. Here, though, you'll recall we were talking about leaders, political leaders, priests, kings over the kingdom. And here, it's showing that this oven, this heatedness of heart is causing God's people to lash out, to, to attempt to control things politically. And the way they would do that here is essentially assassinate one king and put in another king. And if we look at Israel's history, that's exactly what was happening in this time. Of all the kings, when you come to the close of the, of the northern kingdom, I think it's something like six or seven of their rulers were just assassinated, 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 assassinated. Just going through them. Why? Their hearts are heated up. Um, instead of condemning evil, by the way, each of these leaders, 
Notice their wickedness made the king glad. Their political leaders actually delighted in and participated in evil. Last week, the priests were described like bandits. Here, the kings are described as adulterers who take delight in wickedness. Uh, Really, when we see this section for us, an application that's really important is that we've got to be clear to pray for our political leaders. I mean, certainly at this time, these kings, they were were wicked kings. They were doing evil things. Uh, When Paul commands the church to pray for, for leaders, Uh, It's very likely Nero was emperor at the time. Again, a wicked king. Uh, That's not the point. When when it's described in in 1 Timothy to pray, it says, I urge then, first of all, the petitions, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgiving be made for all people, for kings and all those in authority, that we may live peaceful and quiet lives in all godliness and holiness. And so we we, we need to do that. Um, Here in, in, in this section of chapter 7 of Hosea, there's a sense in which there's an overheated oven in the heart of the leaders. There's overheated hearts in the people of the people. Their passion for evil is smoldering. It's so hot that even, um, verse 4, even it's heated so much that the baker doesn't have to even stir the fire up. So you know how when you have a fire, you want to stir up the fire to keep it going? Their fire is so hot, it doesn't even need to be touched. It's just burning. They're consumed by their own sin. And, and the picture here is sin is feeding sin. It's feeding sin. It's, it's the desire to control. It's the desire to rule. It's the desire to even engage in wickedness. In their case, they're worshiping Baal. They're sacrificing children to this God. They're engaging in temple prostitution to, to appease this fertility God. They want their crops to grow, so they engage in wickedness in order to control things to make that happen for themselves. And they're being consumed by their own sin, sin feeding sin, giving the temptation, compromising. And the fire burns stronger and stronger and stronger within them. Here's a question. Can you see ongoing patterns of sin in your life? And has caving into temptation actually made you more vulnerable to to temptation? Kind of like gasoline in a match. The call here would be turn to God in repentance. Repentance. He says, again, I will restore you. I will heal you. I will forgive you as you turn to me. Uh, There's there's other analogies that are used throughout this section. Um, Verse 8 describes uh, the people of Israel as a cake that hasn't been turned. Um, Look at what it says. Ephraim mixes himself with the nations. Ephraim has become like a cake not turned. You're going, what does that mean? Well, have you ever had a pancake on the griddle? How do you know you're supposed to flip the pancake? Those bubbles pop, right? Don't try to flip it early. It's going to be all raw in the middle. It's not going to turn out. I'm the breakfast master at our house, okay? I will, I will coach you on pancakes. No problem. I can do that. But can you imagine if I'm sitting there making breakfast for the kiddos and I got the pancake on there and I don't flip it? I just sort of like serve them up, and it's like doughy on one side and cooked on the other side? What good is that? That's nasty. That's gross. I deserve to be fired as a dad at that point, okay? It's just not okay. That's what, that's what Israel is. They're, a, they're no good for anybody. They're, they're so addicted to their sin, their passion, their oven-like hearts are pursuing every form of wickedness. They're like a pancake that hasn't been turned. They're, like, they're a contradiction. They aren't good for eating. They're not good for looking at it. They're just to be thrown away. 
There's other analogies that are used. Uh, in, in, in verses 9 and following, 9 and 10, we, we find kind of the, this parable of, of, a, of a, an older person who doesn't know they're old. It's kind of an interesting way to put it. But look what it says, verses 9 and 10. Strangers devour his strength, referring to Israel, yet he doesn't know it. Gray hairs are also sprinkled on him, yet he doesn't know it. Through the pride of Israel, though the pride of Israel testifies against them, yet they have not returned to the Lord their God. They have not sought him for all this. And so you kind of have this picture of a person who's, again, gray hairs are sprinkled on them, but they don't know it. Um, they're, they're, they're old, but they're not able to realize it or act their age. And uh, I don't know, you know, sometimes my, my, my kids, especially my daughters, uh, they will look at me and what I wear and they're like, Dad, I'm sorry, man, that's just not okay. You know, I don't know what you're doing. I'm like, what? This is my favorite shirt. I, you know how many shirts I've had thrown away that I love because they're my favorites, but for some reason, I don't know, someone in the fashion industry decided that's not cool anymore. It's going to be, and seven years later, it's going to be the coolest thing in the world, right? But no, it's gone. And something to remember, by the way, also would be that, you know, the only thing worse than an unfashionable middle-aged man is a middle-aged man attempting to be fashionable, okay? <laughs> I mean, come on, that's just wrong sometimes, too. We all know that guy, you know, he just, he won't dress his age, you know what I'm saying? Like, he's, it's okay, dude, let the skinny jeans go, they're not made for your generation. It's all right. You don't have to go to those testosterone treatments. And that car you're driving, look, you don't just buy a nice sedan, man. It's okay, really, you know. But that, that, that's what Israel's like here. They're like someone who doesn't recognize who they really are. And they're not living in light of who they really are. They're God's people. They've been rescued. They've been saved. They've been purchased out of the land of Egypt. They're not living like who they really are. They're trying too hard to be like the nations around them. Is that you? Do you want to be like the culture around you? Do you want to be kind of received, accepted, caught up with the current trends? You know, often people will talk about trying to become like the world in order to reach the world. And certainly there's a, there's a way in which we want to be understood by those we're speaking with. There is a way in which we can, we can take our language and make it more understandable, where we can come next to people rather than being separate from them, right? We don't want to do those things. The whole monastic movement of centuries past, that was so misguided and misled. But how often are we really trying to be like them? Because you know what? We want to be liked. We want to be received. We want to fit in. And what happens is when that comes about, especially within the church, when a church as a whole even does that, to try to just sort of fit into the culture, we end up losing our distinctiveness. We lose the clarity of proclaiming this beautiful reality of the gospel. That God would rescue sinners like us, not based on our merits, not based on our deeds. He calls us what we really are, sinners, and yet he calls us out of that into this marvelous light that we just sang about, who is Christ. But sadly, verse 10 tells us what? They don't return. They don't seek the Lord their God. They're too busy seeking out other lovers. Um, we also now find another analogy 
in the next couple verses. So not, not only is Israel like a half-turned cake or like a middle-aged person doesn't know their age or act their age, they're also kind of like a dove. We find that in verses 11 and 12. It says this, So Ephraim has become like a silly dove without sense. They called Egypt. They go to Assyria. When they go, I will spread my net over them and bring them down like birds of the sky. I will chastise them in accordance with the proclamation to their assembly. This idea of being a silly dove is sort of like Israel won't settle on one thing. They're going here for help. Oh, then we're going to do this. Now we're going to do that. Oh, we're going over there. They're fickle. They won't just choose a path of trusting God, stick with it, and go no matter what. It's always the latest thing, the latest trend. And it's not hard for us to see how relevant that image is to us today as well. Because a lot of times, especially these days, insecurities control people. And people go from one thing to the other, seeking fulfillment here, seeking fulfillment there. It might be someone who's going from, from uh, one trend of, of, of uh, what it seems to be to be accepted by the culture, then the culture shifts and we just run with that. It's, it's kind of like that, that ancient um, depiction of, of in Greece where there's a, a nobleman standing here and there's a whole crowd running this way and he's like, which way is this crowd going so I can get in front of them to lead them? And then that's not leading. But that happens. It happens in personal lives. It might be someone jumping from one lover to another lover. It might be someone switching from one money investment to another investment. Trying to find security in things that are not God. And we don't find them. And so we move from one thing to the other like a senseless dove. And and we don't realize that we, we never really find that place of rest because we never seek rest in the only place it can be found. And that is in walking with and knowing the living God through Christ. Augustine was the, the one who put it this way, our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. Uh, we, we find similar pictures uh, throughout, scattered throughout the rest of this section in terms of God calling on his people to trust exclusively in him. Uh, we, would, we would see it in sort of the strange political alliances that Israel's constantly making, sometimes with Assyria, sometimes with Egypt, um, but none of them are going to help them. And as a matter of fact, in, in chapter 8, verses 8 through 10, we find the Lord saying, you're going to diminish because you placed your hope in a political alliance instead of placing your hope in me. And how applicable is that for us today? You know, regardless of where you stand politically, how much is the daily news cycle churning out? Yeah, rest in this uh, movement, this thing, this candidate, this, that, because then things will be fill in the blank. And it's not that we shouldn't be responsible and wise with the privilege we have in our country to be a part of that process and that we shouldn't be lights for Christ in the midst of that. But brothers and sisters, let's be very careful with where we place our hope. Because it's not going to be in a political alliance. That can't save you. And that'll never satisfy. Another picture we would find of this very idea of God requiring exclusive trust is in, is in verse 14 at the end of chapter 8. Uh, what's happened? Israel's forgotten his maker and built palaces. Judah's multiplied fortified cities. 
So what's happening? They're trusting in what they can make, what they can build, rather than God. And God's saying, in my justice, those things are going to be consumed. So God responds to his people's idolatry first by requiring exclusive trust, saying, don't trust in those things, trust in me. But secondly, he also demands sincere worship. And we find that really spelled out in chapter 7, verses 13 and following. Look at what he says in verse 13. Woe to them. They've strayed from me. The destruction is theirs. They've rebelled against me. I would redeem them, but they speak lies against me. And they don't cry to me from their hearts. And you're going, okay, yeah. Why, why don't the people of God cry out to God from their hearts? He, he, he calls us to do that. In that time, they were pursuing other options. What options were that? Well, worshiping Baal. I don't know if you remember, but uh, you might recall in the episode on, on Mount Carmel, when the prophet Elijah is facing off with the prophets of, of Baal, or Baal, however you want to say that, um, what happens? The prophets, in seeking Baal, they end up cutting themselves and crying out to him. They wail, and then they slice on themselves as an act of devotion to him. Well, Look at this description in verses 14 and following. They don't cry to me from their heart. What do they do instead? When they wail on their beds for the sake of grain and new wine, they assemble themselves, they turn away from me. Though I trained and strengthened their arms, they devised evil against me. So this description here is that of worshiping Baal. They don't turn to me, they turn to that false god instead. And as a result, it's dangerous. It's a dangerous thing for them, and it's a dangerous thing for, for those around them. And so he compares them now with, with a, a bow, something that you would fire an arrow with that is out of whack. It's not calibrated. It's what they call a deceitful bow. So look at verse 18. They turn not upward, but they're like a deceitful bow. Doubly dangerous in that they don't hit a target, and they're dangerous to those who use them. Their princes will fall by the sword because of the insolence of their tongue. This will be their derision in the land of Egypt. So here they are, endangering themselves, endangering others. They're off the mark. Uh, Verse 14 describes wailing on their beds, and that language can be taken to also mean to slash themselves as well. And so God God has been the one that's always protected his people. When they turned to him for help, he always protected them. He equipped them for battle. They were trained by God. But now instead, they're resting in other places. And so this idea of the bow is it's on target. It's going toward the direction of actual truth and help. It fires correctly. And, And in many ways, we would see for us one key application would be as believers. You know, are we in fact pointed in the right direction? Are we aimed on the right target? Are, are we seeing things clearly the way they really are? And, and you know what? I know that I grow in that way and I become clear in that way when I am in fact gathering with my brothers and sisters in, in, in Christian community. 
We need one another for that. I, I need people around me to say, hey, Chris, where are you going? You're off target. You're not heading the right way. You're, you're blurred. Your vision isn't clear. You're not seeing things. And so brothers and sisters around me help me to grow with clarity and precision on target with my true hope, my true joy, my true security, my true satisfaction being in Christ alone. And when I'm on my own, invariably, I veer off in other directions and I look for joy and affirmation in other places. And so I need people with me sharing their lives with me, speaking about Jesus day to day, talking about God and the things of God together. And that's why the New Testament tells us, encourage one another daily, as long as it's called today, so that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. And so that's why we need to gather together. We need to speak of God's love for us. We need to talk about our love for God. We need to fan the flame of our passion for God with one another towards him. We need to consider, as we're told in the New Testament, how to stir each one another up to good works. And so the question would be, are you, are you involved in community? Or are you trying to do this thing by yourself? I mean, if you are just showing up here for a service and then taking off and living your whole life like whatever and then popping back into this room a week later, and if you believe that that's the Christian life, uh, that isn't. We need to be talking with one another and getting with one another and, and spending time, making time for that. And if, if it's in a community group that's offered here, wonderful. If it's just you on the phone with someone saying, hey, we are going to get together at Pete's to talk about God together, great. If you don't drink coffee, that's fine. They serve tea, okay? There's other stuff. There's these energy infusion drinks now. I don't even know what they are. I have them the other day. I'm like, wow, it was fruity. And then I was like, I'm so awake. So they work, whatever they are. Whatever that is. Just get with people. Get with one another. You know, for some of you, when you bought your home, that is what you said, right? Wow, now we can host people and have them over. Okay, are you using your home for the purpose that you believed God gave it to you when you bought it? If not, this is a wonderful opportunity to say, wait, no, Lord, that's right. That's what we said. Hospitality is a beautiful thing. It's a rare thing. Make time for that. Let's encourage one another. We need it. And God uses it. You'll, you'll notice at the, the very end of verse 16 of chapter 7, it says, this will be their derision in the land of Egypt. Now, sometimes Egypt is referred to, it's referring to Egypt, the country. Other times, Egypt is being used to refer to figuratively their captivity again. Remember we said before, they were called out of Egypt as God's people. They were rescued from slavery. And now God's saying, oh, you want to go back? You want to go back to these gods that can't really save you or help you? Then fine, you're going to go back into captivity. In other words, you're going to go back into Egypt because you're rejecting me. So here we find in end of verse 16, that's going to be their judgment. Assyria will come. Assyria will overtake the northern kingdom Israel and they will be taken again into captivity. So how does God respond to his people's spiritual adultery? He, he requires exclusive trust. He demands sincere worship. Thirdly, we also see God desires that we genuinely know him. Where do we see that? Well, it's in chapter 8, verses 1 through 3. 
Look what it says. Put a trumpet to your lips. Like an eagle, the enemy comes against the house of the Lord because they have transgressed my covenant and rebelled against my law. They cry out to me, my God, we of Israel know you. Israel has rejected the good. The enemy will pursue him. They're saying we know you, God. They're crying that out at the top of their lungs. It's all lip service. The prophet Isaiah will say something similar. He will say, woe to my people. Their lips are close to me, but their hearts are far from me. And so these people of Israel claim to know God and love the Lord, but their deeds show otherwise. It's almost like they're standing there going, praise be to you, God, and praise be to Baal. You know, when, when, uh, when, when the golden calf was made back in the Exodus journey and Moses comes back off the, the, of Mount Sinai in order to judge the people, before that happened, as the calf was removed from the fire that the people of God had made, because Moses took too long. The people of Israel are going, where's Moses? I don't know. You've seen him? I don't know. He's been gone there for a while. Yeah, he's been gone for days. Wow, he's really up there. What's happening? He must have left. Okay, what are we going to do? I got an idea. Let's make a golden calf and we'll worship it. And so they gather all the gold, they melt it all together. Aaron, the priest, is standing there. Aaron, who should have confronted them, who should have uh, dealt with this sin, instead stands there. But notice, he doesn't simply say, now we're worshiping this golden calf. He says, the calf comes out and he says, behold, the Lord your God who led you out of Egypt. You see what's happening? They would say there in that moment, if you were to pull one aside and say, hey, what are you guys doing? Because number one, This is twisted, weird, and perverted. Number two, you're going to pay the consequences for this because God's a holy God. They would probably say to you, oh, well, wait, no, 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 we're not not worshiping God. We're worshiping Yahweh as a golden calf. So it's not rejecting God. We're just blending. We're kind of syncretizing two things and putting them together. Which means what? You don't know God. To genuinely know God, to genuinely worship him means by definition there is no mixture. There is no putting two things together. It is Yahweh alone or nothing. And that's why Jesus would even conclude the Sermon on the Mount with some very sobering words when he says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. People are going to say, we know you, Lord, we know you. And he's going, yeah. Really? How do you know? Jesus concludes that sermon by saying this, but only he who does the will of my Father in heaven. He also goes on to say, there will be many who prophesy in my name or perform miracles whom will say, to whom he will say, I never knew you. Away from me, evildoers. That's sobering. To assume that someone knows God and, and, and for God to say, I don't know you. How can we respond? How can we have assurance as Christians or, or confidence even in our salvation? And so Jesus goes on to talk about the parable of the house built on the rock and the house built on the sand. And it has everything to do with how do you treat God's word? Do you take it in 
receive it or not. And Jesus says, therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and acts on them, there it is, hears these words of mine and acts and may be compared to a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and it slammed against the house, yet it did not fall for it had been founded on the rock. Everyone who hears these words of mine but does not act on them would be like a foolish man who built his house in the sand. The rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and slammed against that house and it fell. And great was its fall. So if we want confidence in Christ, we need to make sure that we rest our lives on the words of God. That we rest our lives in the assurance that's only available in the gospel. We have to trust the complete finished work of Jesus. And then we can have complete confidence that he is our sure foundation. But if we're trusting in our own works, if we're trusting in our own righteousness, if we're trusting in our own kind of man-made religious ways to marry right before God, there's no confidence there. Or if we just walk away and try to blend things together, well, I'm going to take a little bit of Jesus and I'm going to add a little bit of this and a little bit of that and just blend it up and look what I get. There's no confidence to be found there either. So... How does God respond to his people's spiritual adultery? Not only does he require exclusive trust and demand sincere worship and desire that we genuinely know him, but he also calls us, lastly, to live under his rule. And we find that in, in chapter 8, verses 4 through 7. Look at it. They've set up kings, he says, but not by me. They've appointed princes, but I didn't know them. With silver and gold, they've made idols for themselves that they might be cut off. So he's saying they, they've put their people in place and referring back to this assassination kind of cycle that Israel was in. One king gone, next one gone, next one gone, gone. So they're putting these people in place to rule them because they think in them they're going to have salvation. In them their life will be made right. In them they'll have security. But there's none to be found there. And so they just keep going through this cycle. They've also made idols of gold. And now it gets more pointed at, at some of the idolatry that Israel was engaging in with um, the worship of the Baals. It would include a golden calf of sorts. And so look at what he says very particularly in verse 5. He has rejected your calf, O Samaria. My anger burns against them. How long will they be incapable of innocence? Verse 6, for from Israel is even this, a craftsman made it. So it's not God. Here, here's a key statement. Hey, how do you know that this gold calf is not God? You made it. Key distinction. Because guess what? When you're dealing with the actual God of the universe, he made you. Big difference. You got to love how the prophets in other places will kind of bring out some humorous things in line with this. So you take some wood and part of it you kind of make into an idol and you worship it. And then part of it you make a fire and you cook your dinner. So you're cooking your dinner on some of this stuff. You make an idol out of some of this stuff. You worship some of this stuff. You, you eat over the other one. Surely the calf of Samaria will be broken to pieces. And then a very profound statement in verse 7. A picture that... that uh, maybe generations past was 
quoted a lot more. It just says this, for they sow the wind and they reap the whirlwind. What's he talking about there? Well, this idea of, of uh, sowing the wind and reaping the whirlwind is kind of a cause and effect argument. So it's kind of like you reap what you sow, which Jesus would describe and the New Testament would describe. But it's also saying when you sow to the wind a little bit, what happens is you're chasing after that which isn't sustainable, isn't something that can actually support you. It can't really do anything. It kind of it reminds me a little bit of uh, many years ago, there were several hurricanes. I think Katrina was one of them. And so many years ago, this eBay was just starting to take off, right? And people were kind of, ooh, eBay, you can sell stuff online. And so this person was selling wind from Katrina. And there's a picture of him in the ad. He's got like a large gallon-sized Ziploc bag. And he's like standing in this like hurricane force wind. Ah! Like capturing the wind. Like his cheeks cheeks are flapping. His hair is blown back. And he's like this. And so... What you get in the box is a sealed Ziploc bag of wind from Katrina. A collector's item, I am told, today. But that's the idea. You're sowing to the wind. You're trying to capture the wind. You're trying to use the wind. You're, trying to, you're thinking that this is going to do something for you. But what happens as a result? No, you sow to the wind. You reap the whirlwind. That hurricane force wind is hitting you back and pushing you back. There's a consequence that comes from that. So you're going to trust in Assyria? Huh. Guess what? Assyria is blowing back on you, Israel, and you're going to be taken over and overrun and taken into captivity. You're going to be brought low. And that proverb describes us too. You know, sometimes a small action that we might take that we think is not going to bring about too much of a big deal has massive consequences, especially when you're flirting with sin. You know, it's, it's... it's very often the reverse. A small action can lead to a large consequence. You know, we'll lie to avoid embarrassment, but to maintain that pretense, we're forced into bigger lies and larger lies and larger lies, and eventually we find out that the consequences exceed the initial embarrassment we were trying to avoid. That small lie can reap the whirlwind of widespread exposure. That, that second glance leads to a sexual fantasy that leads to a liaison that leads to something that has to be covered up. So you sow the second glance, you reap the wrecked marriage. I mean, that's what happened to David in 2 Samuel 11. And then he reaped murder and death and eventually a civil war waged by his own son against him. And that happens a lot in our culture today, doesn't it? Oh, it's okay. My actions have no consequences. It doesn't hurt anybody. But actions do have consequences. And those consequences can be way more significant than we think. So what is God doing through this whole thing? He's saying, Israel, I will take you back. Turn to me. And he will discipline them if they won't. All of this, even the very jealousy of God, God's holy, God's holy jealousy flows from, as we've said, his holy love. This is a love story. We're in the middle of the love story. We haven't gotten to the end of it yet. But this is him coming to his betrothed, his, his wife. And God is saying to his people, 
Repent. Come back to me. Here's the question for you. How will you today respond to God's love for you? You know, if you're a believer here today, you are a part of this love story of the ages. Repent, believe, trust in him again and again. Trust him alone. Worship him sincerely every day. Walk with him. Know him intimately. Walk under his rule in growing obedience. And when you do so, you realize he's purchased you out of that slave market of sin. And in him, you really are free. Live out who you are and grow to see the beauty of his love. Faithful love towards a faithless people. Let's pray. Lord, we ask that you would grace us to see the gravity, the weight, and the beauty of this love story. Thank you for Christ, the Lord, the Redeemer, who has purchased us out of grace and mercy, not because of what we deserve. We pray, Lord, that we would grow to understand you more and to love you more because you first loved us. Amen.